All right, good morning. Good to see you all. If this is your first time here, my name is Ricardo Stewart. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, again, yeah, if your first time here, you stepped into an interesting time for us because we are beginning uh, this Sunday, this morning, a six-week series entitled Building a Stronger Church. In essence, what we're doing is we're casting vision for our congregation. Uh, Redemption Church is a multi-congregational church, and so there's other congregations, and they're doing the same. Uh, we're focusing here on Redemption Tempe, the people who God has uh, brought here to be with us and uh, to serve with us for the past eight years and asking God, okay, what does the next 20 years look like for us? And so for six weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, what we believe God has called us to do and who God has called us to be um, through the work and, and life of Jesus Christ. And so there's kind of three people who are, I'm talking to uh, throughout the day. Uh, those of you who are just checking out Redemption Tempe, this may be your first time and your second time, and maybe you're looking for a church and, and you're just checking out just happen to be here. What I'm saying is stay here for six weeks. Just six weeks, you would know who we are and what we're about. You have a good understanding of us as we go through this series. And then you could decide to be with us or you could go and, um, well, you'll want to be here with us, all right? Um, those of us who are here, that, um, that, that other group is a, a people who have just been here for a while. When we start telling stories about Redemption Tempe and where God's taken us, you're going to laugh and you're going to go, I remember those days and I've been invested here. I was that single guy who came here looking for a woman and now we're married and we have kids and, and, and I hate single guys because I have a daughter, right? You're that guy now. And, and, and then there's a group of people who are saying, we've been around, but we've never really immersed ourselves into this church. And, and I want all those different groups to be able to participate over these next six weeks. Um, I've said this for the past two weeks. Plan on being here. Be here. Just be here for six weeks to hear what we believe God has to tell us. And at the end of this series, we're going to have uh, a capital campaign in which we, in Redemption Tempe, are going to raise a million dollars for the property in which we pur- purchase and for responsibility and investment as well as uh, strategic renovations. And we're going to talk about that today. Um, but this morning, we're just starting with week one, um, and we're going to talk about ownership. And how ownership is expressed through sacrificial, selfless service, um, serving the people around us. Next, next week, we're going to come back, and it's Super Bowl Sunday, so we're only going to have two services. Um, two services because it is a national holiday. And so we want you home with your friends and your people to enjoy the Super Bowl. And so we'll have the 9 a.m. and the 1045. If you're used to coming to the 1045, I'm asking you to go to the 9 a.m. Because the 5 and the 7, they're not used to getting up before 1 p.m. And so we're going to have them come to the 1045. And so next week, I'm 30. Uh, next week, <laughs> next week, if you, if you would come to the 9 a.m., that would be great. Uh, we're going to talk about discipleship. Uh, week three, generosity. What does it mean for us to be a generous church to give outside of ourselves? Week four, um, what does it look like for us to be an eclectic community? A community of old and young, black, white, Asian, Latino, um, people who are creative, people who are not that creative. How, do we, how does the gospel draw in um, people from our community in Tempe and Phoenix and Scottsdale and Mesa, or the cities that surround us, that we can look like the community to be able to serve the community? And in week four will be reliance. Um, What does it look like for us to rely on God's people and on God's word and on God's spirit that we have to have a great deal of reliance as we continue to grow? And then week six will be our commission Sunday, uh, and it's sent, that the people of God are not called to just huddle together in in a church building, but the people of God, God are the church and are to be thrown into every sphere of society and every domain of society to witness the resurrection of Christ Jesus in both word and deed. And so we're going to talk about that. So, but again, this morning, 
ownership and how ownership in itself is expressed through selfless, sacrificial service. And so if you have your Bibles, why don't you meet me in Jeremiah chapter 29. Um, If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and please keep it raised really high. And then someone will hand you a copy of God's word. Um, this This is, if you don't have a Bible, please keep the copy that we give you. We want you to have it. Also, just by way of disclaimer, um, I'm a little filling in on the weather. This past week, I was uh, with a few pastors out in Salt Lake City meeting with other church leaders, which every time I've said that so far, people are saying, which church? Um, the Christian church in Salt Lake City. Uh, but I don't know if you've been watching. I don't know if you've been watching the news at all, but there was a thing there called the toxic fog, um, which I've never heard of before, but I, 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 in, I inhaled the toxic fog, and I've been sick ever since. And so I got back a couple of days ago, and so I've been coughing violently. And so what I promised the people and you guys is it's not going to get into communion. It's still going to be holy, juice or wine, whatever one you decide to pick, all right? So, but I may stop and pause for a second, uh, but uh, we'll get through it. We'll definitely get through it. So Jeremiah 29, which we're going to get to in just a second, um, but when it talks to vision, the vision of the church. I've been so excited about this series, getting ready for this series, because uh, now being the lead pastor here for the past year and a half, um, being able to look at who we are, I've been able to study our history, where we've been, and to be able to have an understanding of where we're going. So, so before we even talk about where we believe God is taking us and what we believe God is doing through us, uh, we'd be remiss, and I would be remiss, to not talk about the past. Ray Bakke, who's an urban theologian, says, I never listen to people or trust people who tell me where the church should be going if they can't tell me where the church has been. And so we got to tell some stories because stories shape us. Stories tell us how we got here. Um, Many of us in this room, we we were not here at the beginning and the inception of Redemption Tempe. We we were not there at the beginning of that. We were not there at the genesis of that, but we're, we're here now. We may have not been a part of the first eight years, but we definitely want to be a part for the next eight, 10, 15, 20 years. So let me just tell you a little story of how we got here. First, and it comes to places, um, Justin Anderson and also his soon-to-be wife, Emily Anderson, moved here from San Diego, from the Rock Church, to plant what is now called Redemption Tempe. First place they met was Tim and Sherry's house, all right? Some of you are like, oh, Tim and Sherry is. Tim is usually, Tim is our eldest elder, um, who usually does benediction at the end. He's, he's, the, he's the father of us all. His wife, Sherry, they started this church um, in their house, 11 people. Out of those 11 people, there's four left. Tim Anderson, Sherry Anderson, Evan Anderson. There's a consistent theme when this church started. They all have the same name as the leading pastor, Justin Anderson. And then also Jason Raber, who wishes that he was an Anderson. And so those are the four people that, are, that were still there. Um, they're still here. The second place is that they moved to multiple theaters on the ASU campus. So whatever place they can meet in, they would meet in those places, and they would share the gospel there. And then the church went through a series of buildings that were AKA, also known as cross points, because they all had cross point in the name. So the first was 10th and Ash, which is cross point one. And I want to do something. I didn't get a chance to do this last hour. How many of you guys were part of 10th and Ash cross point one? Show of hands for you guys there. First First building I showed up to, I was a very, very young Christian. I met Justin, uh, me and a good friend of mine uh, who's still here, went to that church and, and met Justin and become to come on Sundays and hear the, God, the word of God preach. Best part about the community then was uh, not only Justin's teaching, but Justin's mom, Sherry, would sit out front 
and it was about 40, 50 people that were part of the congregation at the time, and give hugs to everyone who walked in, said hello, and knew you by name. And I would just go because it's like, Where's, oh, there's Sherry. How you doing? And just give hugs, right? We, we don't really do that anymore because the bigger the church has got, the more awkward that seems. Um, if we had a ministry of huggers, every 22-year-old single college guy would be like, yeah, I, yeah I'm called to serve there, right? <laughs> so we don't do that anymore. The fourth place that we met at was Beck and University, Cross Point 2. The fifth place was the movie theater. Now, how many of you guys were there at the movie theater? Hands there. That was the hardest place because it was so comfortable to sit in those chairs. And as good as a preacher as Justin was, it was bam, out, right? Take communion and go home. And so we were there for a short period of time. Sixth place was Rule and Southern, which was Cross Point 3. And then finally, the seventh place, Price and Southern, the Promised Land right? And so that's where we are here in the property we are now. We've seen the most growth that we've had as a church here. And so we went from 11 people eight years ago to today, we'll probably have around 1,100 adults and right around 90 to 100 kids. Uh, when the church started, we had zero kids and a lot of single men, a lot of single women. And so we've seen the church grow numerically. But those places are more than just places, right? They tell stories of people, They tell stories of people who didn't know God until the ministry of redemption began to bless them with the gospel. It tells stories of people who came, uh, maybe freshly out of college or in college, of single people, like like Jason Raber, right, who's one of our elders here. That Jason showed up, a part of that first meeting in Tim and Sherry's house, as a skinny, wee little of a man, single, that now he's married with three kids. But he's still a skinny, wee little of a man, right? One of our founding elders, it it tells stories uh, of the Garbinsky family, as a family that's been a part of this church forever, that serves here faithfully. Um, Audra serves and leads with the children's ministry, and then Justin's one of our most faithful band members, and just a committed family, that they saw a house in a neighborhood, that they so understood the vision of saying, we want to minister and be hope, a light of hope of the gospel of the community around us, that they wanted to move into the Maple Ash community, easily the the least Christian community, um, and a hard place to live, even financially. And they fasted and they prayed and they pulled all their resources together because they wanted to raise a family there. Only to see God give them that house for them to have a family. They have two beautiful boys, but they use that house for more ministry than probably anyone I know. That, it, that if you've been around here for some time, you've probably been at the Garbinsky's house and you probably ate their food. You probably felt their love. They're easily some of the most committed people to, to this church, and we've seen that flourish. There, there's, there's stories that make me laugh. Um, one of the, the Cross Point One building in 10th and Ash, um, it was so amazing to be a part of that, that you saw many people that were coming to know Jesus and coming from different church backgrounds, and, and communion at that time was sometimes just as confusing it is for a first-time person that comes here. Juice or wine? Do I really look at, do I look at you? Do I, I mean, just communion sometimes is just an awkward time. In that building, there was a big, huge bowl and then a big thing of just crackers there. And I remember standing behind this girl, and um, many of the people in Redemption are come from Episcopal or Catholic backgrounds. And if you're familiar with the Catholic Church, you, you drink out of the same communion um, wine. And so this girl's looking at this bowl, and she's looking at the cracker, and she's looking at the bowl. I'm like, what is she doing? Oh, maybe she's just kind of getting it right, getting herself right, right? And so she takes the cracker, she eats it, and she looks at the bowl, and then she goes to scoop up the bowl. And we're like, no, 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 no. Don't drink from the bowl, right? So, and it was just, just, just moments like that, right? And stories like that of people who are a part of this community, people who have been a part of this community, have been sent to plant churches like Vince and Flagstaff or even Justin in San Francisco. 
People have gone on to different things like Garth, who's in law school at UCLA. I got a note from a gal who listens to the podcast and was encouraging us for this series. And she actually is at a church in New York City and was thanking the ministry here of Tempe that prepared her and her faith to be in a, in a major city like New York and be able to live uniquely and distinctly as a Christian. And so those are just some of the stories of the first eight years of us being a church and, and just people trying to figure out what does it mean to live on mission equipped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we continue, by God's grace, upon the work of Christ Jesus to, to build a stronger church, it's not by any means getting rid of what we've ever done. It's building on top of and continuing that. So, so what's, next, what's next for us? And what is it that we, we want to do? Well, we want to continue to do what we've been doing, but just more of it. And if you want to understand a vision, you always have to go to God's word. But if we're going to be a people of God and a place that does not serve God, we have to look to the scriptures and look at examples of people who've lived in a pluralistic society and yet you live uniquely and distinctly uh, as people of God. And that's where we come to Jeremiah 29. Easily one of the most familiar passages around our circles. One of the most shaping passages of our circles because we believe that the context of which Jeremiah writes to these exiles is similar to our context. These, These are young men and women Um, who were God's people ripped away from Jerusalem that were placed in Babylon. And they weren't the only exiles. There there were other exiles that were there, other faiths, other beliefs, other worldviews. And they were being told multiple stories. This is not unlike our context now. We have multiple beliefs, multiple faiths, multiple worldviews of people, especially if you're coming out of college. You're being taught so many things. And that the idea of having an absolute truth just seems foreign. That truth in itself is being taught as relative, not as something that you can have one faith and one God. And yet we see that Jeremiah begins to write to these exiles to show them how they are to be the people of God. How are they supposed to live in the context of this pagan society? And, And Jeremiah begins to speak on behalf of God, and he gives them what I would call is the third way to live, which is God's way. You see, the first way that they were being told was the Babylonian way. This way was saying, if we can just get them our good food, if we can get them good education, if we can get them jobs, um, they will help our society. The best way for you to fit in society is have an ideal of relativism, meaning have your faith, but don't, don't put it in the forefront. Don't have a public faith. Have a very private faith. Don't talk about it. Don't live it out. As long as you can do what you can do to be, get along with everybody else, that'd be fine. Essentially, use the things of the city and then invent, reinvent yourself. Make a name for yourself, and that will help the society, but decrease in your understanding of who you are as God's people. That would be just assimilation. That's what the Babylonians wanted. And the other way was just an extreme religious way. And this was the way by a man by the name of Hananiah, who was a false prophet. He actually writes in Jeremiah 28, the chapter before and he begins to lie and say, this is what you, no, 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 don't move into the city. Don't be around people that don't believe what you believe. Let your kids play with only kids like them. Um, don't start businesses with people who don't believe the same way you believe. Don't, don't work with them. And in fact, let's create a holy huddle out here so that we can care for only our tribe, that we can care for only our people. And then in two years, God's going to come and he's going to take us away. But both of those ways, either assimilation or separation, were never what God wanted. God never says just to look out for number one, use people, use places so that you can build a name for yourself. Nor does God say just only be with people that believe like you. But God's way was far different. God began to tell the exiles to move into the city. He began to tell these young men and women to move and take jobs there. 
but to do it in a unique way, to not at all decrease in their faith, but to increase in their faith in number. But the way of God, that third way, and the way of redemption was ownership. And the way that God called them to take ownership of this city, of, of Babylon, was not to take over powerfully, not ownership financially, but it was far more through selfless, sacrificial service. Here's what God tells the exiles in chapter 29, verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. When the exiles heard this, they had to be beside themselves because what God was saying was love them, serve them. The people who are not like you, be with them, bless them, give to them. That this means be here for a long time, plant gardens and build houses. That was a sign of saying, you're going to be here for a while. Get yourself a job and then take what you're growing and your produce and make, make money off of it and also share with those around you. And take your kids, your boys and your girls and make sure that they get married and they have kids. Multiply there. Um, he didn't say separate, but be amongst them, but be continually shaped by God's people, as, as God's people with an identity of having relationship with God. And then he, then he says the, the unthinkable. He says, seek the welfare or seek the peace of the city and pray on its behalf. And he pray for these people. Pray for them. Pray for their welfare, um, meaning pray for their, them totality. Pray for them emotionally, socially, psychologically, spiritually, financially. Um, pray for their economical health, their emotional health, and their well-being. Pray for them. Care for them. And then he says, um, seek the peace or seek the welfare. Now, this would, have been, this would have been just profound to them because these are the same people that were still, their hands were still dripping with the blood of killing their, their, their family members. These are the same people who just ripped them away. These were a war-torn people. These were refugees. The exiles were refugees. And they're saying, in this foreign land, God, what do you want us to do? In this place that does not honor you, what do you want us to do? And God says, pour yourselves out to them. Serve them. Serve one another and serve them. That the way of God is always service. Um, the way when we talk about ownership, it is taking ownership of our faith and our church and our city. It's by serving others. It's Jesus telling us that it's better to give than to receive, that we want to believe that ethic. That to live out kingdom values, to be God's people in this city is to serve. It's to give of ourselves to one another and to those around him. That, that, that's, that's what he's saying. Now, when he says, seek the peace of the city, we, we've said this before, that word peace, or also welfare, as it translates in English, is the Hebrew word, shalom. He's saying, seek the shalom of the city. And that, that word is, is, is a, it's a weak translation for us in English because we don't have a word like it. That shalom is far more than just a ceasing of fire between enemies. It's far more than just right relationships between people or even people and God. But it's flourishing. In fact, in his famous book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, Cornelius Plantinga talks about shalom in this way. He says, in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things 
ought to be. When we talk about a vision for redemption to be, wrapped into that vision is, is us seeking and serving in response to the life and love of Christ in which we've, we've so graciously received, is serving the city around us. That we want to seek the shalom of the city. That we want to see people who were lost and people who do not know God introduced to Jesus as we've seen before in the past. That we want to see families that are fragmented and fractured to come to know God and be discipled to healthy relationships. That we want to see people who were, who were wandering, um, people who were searching, that they'd be able to found the truth of Scripture. And not only that, we want to see people who are here like the exiles, who are from literally war-torn countries that God has brought to our city, like many of the refugees that live in Tempe that go to our public schools, that we want to be able to serve those schools like we're doing at the Magic Charter Schools, that we want, even, even if it's something teaching them how to speak English, that they may be better citizens within our society. That we want to be a people that so are so in love with the gospel that we embody the good news of Jesus and every sphere of influence that we're at. That we live out the kingdom values, primarily through serving people. That we want to see neighborhoods littered with people who understand the gospel, who are not just people who drive into their garages and close the garage and never interact with their neighbors, but throw parties and, throw, um, and have, have get-togethers and they invite people over to befriend them. Not only just to have the opportunity to share them about Jesus, but to love them and to care for them because we see wrapped up in the identity of Christ and the very nature of the gospel is that God himself left heaven to move into a neighborhood to bless those who were not like him. That when we think of shalom and we see the scriptures that serve the places around us, we see things that are broken in our city. We see things that are not right in our city and we say, how can we enter in with the love of Christ through proclamation and demonstration? When we see elementary schools closing down yearly, because for some reason, uh, Tempe, particularly North Tempe, has become a place where families do not want to raise their kids. That when we see people who say there's a better opportunity for us to move further away, we can get more land and maybe a bigger house, um, we, we would say, how can we stay here? How can we stay even closer to here? How can we be in cities that are surrounding Tempe to help this particular city so there's not this great dichotomy between college students and people who are older, but there's maybe this middle ground of families or people who are newly married without kids that we would see elementary schools start to open up because there's so many kids there because we've given people an example of what it looks like to live in a city and love a city and care for a city. And that this in itself is not some social action ploy. That this is not something because we think it's cool or it'd be great for people to know redemption as a church like that. But we see this is rooted, that this love, this life is rooted in the scripture. That God sees a people in Babylon and he takes his people and he places them there. And he says, be here for a long time and pray for her. Pray for this city. Serve the people here. Yeah, I know what they've done, but pray for them. And, and every once in a while you'll hear someone say, well, that's good for the exiles. And that's, that's good for, for Jeremiah's people there, but we're the church. We're, we're, we're not young Hebrew men and women. We're, we're the church of God. We're, well, what does the New Testament say about this? Because it just seems like this is a social action, which is it's not at all a social, a social action. The gospel has implications. Well, what, what, what does Jesus say about this? Well, Jesus himself is the true exile. If anyone knows what it means to be an exile, it's Jesus. Jesus wasn't ripped away from his country. He left his home to come into this world to serve people who were completely not like him, people who did not believe like him. He was the only true son of God, and he came himself to serve. So what do you think his people should be about? 
And so when we start with talking about vision, before we talk about anything, we have to look at the life and death and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and say, how did he embody love? How did he embody service? How did he bring forth the kingdom of God? And then what does he tell us to do? Well, Jesus actually does have words for us as a church. And it's very consistent to what God speaks through Jeremiah here about service. He says that in Matthew chapter 5, it's known as the, the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew, or excuse me, Jesus now talking to the crowd, he gives us two pictures of what the church should be. Chapter 5, verse 13 says this, you are the salt of the church. You are not the salt of the church. You are the salt of the earth. <laughs> but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Here's Jesus saying, he's saying, listen, if you're not being salt and you're, you're not doing what salt's supposed to do, then you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. I mean, if we just get together and we sing songs and we say, I love Jesus and I got my born again stick and I'm going to hang on to it until Christ comes back, right, and that's it, then we're not doing it. That means we may not understand the radical vertical love of God. Because there's something about the outpouring of God's grace that when it filters into our lives, that it goes through our hands and our feet, that we actually are becoming the people of God. Jesus says, you're salt. Now, usually what happens is pastors teach this, and you go, you know what salt's like? Salt has flavor, and it also preserves. You're supposed to be the flavor of God. I'm like, ah, I don't know if, like, you know, flavor, flavor is really what, what God is thinking about this moment, right? I think, I think what Jesus is saying at this time was that salt was used to preserve what was good and what was right, and so Jesus says, you know what salt does? Salt makes things last longer. It, it, makes, it makes it good longer. It makes it right longer. So the people of God, as we enter into this world, as we enter into politics, as we enter into arts, as we enter into neighborhoods, as we enter into living rooms, that we look at what is good, what is in people, creating the image of God, believer or unbeliever, that there's value, that there's dignity, that there's beauty. How do we enter into spiritually to teach them about Christ? Um, how do we enter into um, public spheres and say, what is good about this? What is just about this? And what should be? Because when God created everything, he said it's good. Therefore, everything that's created has a value of good. It's just been tainted by sin. And so we, equipped with the gospel of Christ, with the lens of the gospel, understanding the kingdom of God, of which Jesus himself said he brought and he gave to us, so every single man, every single child, every single woman that believes upon Christ Jesus has been given the spirit and is a new creation. So there's a part of every single one of us that's already heaven ready, and it's the spirit of Christ in us. And though the kingdom has not yet fully come, we can have a view of what the kingdom should be like because we know what the king is like. We can see his attributes. So we look at these places and we become salt to say we want to keep what is good, what is just, what is holy, what is beautiful. We, we, want to, we want to show love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, gentleness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control of these areas. We want to be able to embody the good news of Jesus in the places around us to be salt. Because if not, Jesus says, and just throw it away. Like, we should shut the doors and say, hey, we'll see you guys later. Here's a few other churches you should probably go to because clearly we're not doing what God's called us to do. The, the, the next picture that Jesus gives us in verse 14 is, it says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and gives light to all in the house. Now he gives a picture, you're salt, you're preserving thing, and what does light do? You see, in this time, they didn't have light switches, and so they would light a lamp. And the lamp was supposed to be put somewhere high so you can see everything. Light exposes darkness. 
So there's a point for us that we're not just bringing the light of the gospel, but we're seeing, looking at things that are unjust. We're looking at things that are broken. We're looking at families that are broken and seeing if they can be restored. We're looking at lives that are broken and seeing if the gospel brings the healing and restoration there. We're looking at political systems. We're looking at educational systems. We're looking at every sphere of life and saying with Abraham Kuyper, God, you own all of this. Abraham Kuyper says there's no square inch of this world of which Christ alone, who is, who is sovereign, does not look out and cry out, mine. Meaning he's redeeming all things. And that's what we mean when we say all of life is all for Jesus. He is Lord, not just over our morality, but he's Lord over all things. So how do we go as his hands and feet to be able to witness to that, to show and expose darkness that light may come, that good news may come, that we may be embodied with our words and our deeds, the good news of Jesus Christ. That, that, that's what he's saying there. And this is something that, that was, again, not just unique to the Israelites in, in, in Babylon, which was service, but Jesus talked to the church. Now, the way you will take ownership of your faith, your church, and your city is through selfless, sacrificial service. And early Christians got this. They really did. When they moved in the cities, the way that the rise of Christianity, the way that Christianity grew is because they got this. I'm sure they read Jeremiah 29, and I'm sure they read Matthew chapter 5, and they took it literal that God was calling them to be his people in response to his sovereign grace and love in which they've experienced. So, so they read what, what Jesus continues to say here in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The good works there, it literally means deeds of service. Meaning, coming to grips with the gospel, seeing what God has done on your behalf in Christ Jesus, equipping you with the gospel and the Holy Spirit, that there is a response of good works or deeds of service. That we don't only serve those in our own community, but we serve those outside of our community. The church is the only institution that does not only exist for its, its members, but also those who are not its members, who may never even become its members. But we're here to pour ourselves out for them. And again, the church got this. Dionysus, who, who writes um, early in the, around 2060 A.D., um, talking about a plague that happened um, in his country, a plague that took people's lives, hundreds of people's lives. And he talked about what the pagans did. He said they fled, they fled, they fled even their own people who they loved. And he's given an account of this. But then he begins to talk about Christians, and here's what he says. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their very need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were affected, they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, many, nurses, many nursing and curing others transferred death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner, a number of presbyters, deacons, laymen winning high commendation so that their death in this form the result of great piety and strong faith seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. Here's what was happening. Because of their piety or their love for God, not in spite of their love for God, but because of who they were as a community of people, because they realized the city in which they were seeking the love wasn't their eternal city. It was understanding that they had an eternal city, city that they had dual citizenship, that when God in Christ Jesus brought forth the kingdom of God through the spirit of Christ, they knew that they were, they were secured in the new, in the new heavens, the new earth. 
which gave them the freedom to not try to make a name for themselves here, to not try to live for their own safety here, to not try to gather all the material blessings and wealth that we can have to ourselves, but they were able to give it away. And not just their material things, but they were even able to give away their own life to the people around them. And you know why? You know why? It's easy for us to read in Jeremiah and say, yes, yeah, seek, the, seek the peace of the city. Seek the shalom. How could God say that? It's easy, right? We hear Jesus saying, be, be salt, be light. We can read these Christians who did this. Here's why we're able to do it. Because that's exactly what our Savior did. That we are, we are, we are, we are Christians, meaning we are Christ-like did you know that Christianity, the word Christian, was not something that Christians got together and came up and, and named themselves? Some of you have been around Christianity long enough to know that Christians come up with the stupidest names for everything, right? It took the unbelievers who called us Christians, and we thought, finally, something cool for us. They, they, they looked at people in the church of Antioch, and they said, look at there's white people, there's black people, there, there weren't white people, but there was like different people, right? And they said, there's something unique about them. And they look like their Savior, the Christ. They're Christ-like. They're little Christ. We'll call them Christian. Um, because we're Christians, that means everything that we do, everything that we embody is that of Jesus Christ. And we draw our strength from him. Jesus himself says this in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He says, the Son of Man did not come into this world to be served. Meaning, he didn't come to hear the best preacher. He didn't come because of the music. He didn't come because he thought it would be, it'd be good for him because of his business that he was starting. He didn't come because of any of those things. He, he didn't come so that he can make a good name for himself. Jesus said, I did not come to be served. And we see it in his life. He came to one of the poorest communities and the poorest families. Jesus says that the, the birds of the sky, you know, they have nests and the foxes have their holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That Jesus Christ comes to people knowing that did not like him, knowing that wouldn't, that wouldn't join along with him in his plan. He didn't come because he had a community. Jesus Christ came to serve in order to make a community. He said, I did not come to be, to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom. What that means is do, through Christ's life, his death, and his resurrection, we not only have an example of how we're supposed to live as believers in Christ, but we also have the power through his redemption by the power of the Holy Spirit to live out that life. That again, this is not a social agenda, but there's no way that we can believe in Jesus Christ. And when he says to love our neighbors, and if our neighbor's thirsty, we have to give them water. And if our neighbor's hungry, we got to feed them. If our neighbor's poor, we have to provide income for them. We have to provide ways in which they can get jobs. If our neighbor needs something, we have to find a way to come alongside them, whether they are Christians or whether they are not, because that's exactly what Jesus did. On the cross, who was Jesus serving? He was serving people who were not like him. He was serving people like you and I who were spiritually poor and bankrupt and couldn't gain it. He, he, he was serving people who were in, in a major debt, the debt of sin of which we could not pay, and he would pay for us through his blood. Through his body, he was offering, offering to us righteousness that was foreign to us that we did not have, that he gave us. That he was giving us his blood to wash us of our sins, past, present, and future. He says he, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. And so when Jesus now on the cross serves us, when we look to him, we realize he's not only in our example, but he's our savior. He's our Lord, he's our rock, and he's our redeemer. We are Christians, and we are happy to be Christians by God's grace. Therefore, in response to that, when Jesus says in John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, so I now send you. We see that he was sent and took ownership of this world through selfless, sacrificial service. And we look to our Savior in the power of the Spirit and through grace.
that we look to the people around us, to those within our community and our church community and outside of our church community. And like Christ, we seek to serve um, selfless and sacrificial to bless the community around us. Amen? That when, 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 when people begin to hear about the people of redemption, hear, hear me. That video said Tempe needs a savior. And every time I hear that, I hear it going, somehow we're going to be the savior. You guys know this. We are not the savior. Our words won't save people. Um, our, our prayers won't save them. Our service won't save them. But the words when we speak of Jesus, the one in whom we pray to, he's their savior. We, we're just witnesses in word and in deed of that particular truth to be witness for them and to, to show them what the kingdom of God looks like in us, that we can show them that, that God himself is working through a people. And unlike most churches, um, we, we want to be a people that exists for our neighbors, that we, we, we legitimately care for them, even if they don't think that we do. Amen? So two practical things from there. One, you can go ahead and just close your Bible. Um, two, two practical things. First practical thing is for us in this, in this building of stronger churches, get involved, right? I, I mentioned those groups. You have some people here for the first time. I said that last hour, and I think someone got up and left and because um, and, they wrote a card. Hey, it's our first time. We'll come back later. And Jason goes, hey, did you tell them to leave? And I said, no. I said, be here for six weeks. They couldn't even stand the sermon, right? Stay here a little bit longer than the sermon, right? Uh, six more, just, just figure it out. We'll have classes that you can learn more about who we are and what we do as a church, but, but to take whatever that next step is for you. Um, I do believe this is a church that you'll, you'll thoroughly enjoy, and I don't say that because of me. We have some really good people here. Um, the other people are people that are kind of um, on the fence, and not even on the fence, meaning you're just kind of on the sideline. Like, you show up all the time. Like, if you, if you know what I mean by people on the sideline, I know that we have a lot of artists here who never see sports. Um, um, sidelines is a place where people stand and they look at a game, usually an activity revolving a ball or something like that. And so they look, they look into it, and, but they're, they're spectating. And we're saying, hey, get involved. Like, get involved. Like, there's enough room for us to do this. Jim, during the call to worship, um, read from Ephesians 4, which is kind of our lunch, our lunch pad of a, of a text, and it talks about the body uh, being joined together, becoming a mature body, um, or in this literal language, a full-grown man. Well, we will never be a full-grown body um, as Redemption 10B if our people are on the sideline. Meaning we need your gifts, we need your talents, we need your resources, we need your, 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 um, your personalities, your efforts to be a part of this church, or if not, we're not as strong as we would be. In fact, we're limping into service as opposed to running into service to being the light that God has called us to be. And so that means get involved. That means open up your life and let people get into your life and let people open up their lives and you get into their lives and get invested. Serve. And when we say serve, this is not only serving here at this particular congregation. Like, we do not believe that, that ministry happens um, here um, with, within this particular building. No, no, no. There's, there's things we need to do as a family, right? We need people to, to greet. We need people to serve in children's ministry. Uh, we need people to do a few things, hold communion. But for the most part, you guys, if you've been here for any time, you know this. Ministry, our role, when Ephesians 4 says it is the role of pastors to equip the saints of ministry— Ministry is not just things that happen in church-like settings. Ministry just means service. That means everything that you do, you're serving. At your work, at where you live, like every place where you go. If you walk into Intel and you work there, people should say, man, I'm so glad he's here um, because the way that he works is unique. When people walk into the, your school, if you're a teacher, people would just say, I'm glad that she's here. I'm glad that he's here because the way that they teach, the way that they love people is amazing. They care about their subjects. They're, they actually serve, serve us. And people should look into things and they would see, that's what my life would look like if I weren't a Christian because we're able to embody that. 
that we're able to serve there. And so we need everyone to join in on that. And then there's some of you who are just, you're like, that's me, I'm already in. Take others along with you. There's always people next to you that you can grab along and say, let's just jump in together and let's be a healthy, stronger church. The first thing is get all the way in. Maybe take a membership class. What does it mean to be a member? Love Jesus, commit to being a disciple, commit to linking arms with other people, and commit to, commit to participating financially and faithfully to this particular congregation so that we can see the gospel advanced. The second thing is for us corporately. Like, what does it mean for us to serve this community? What's the next step for us? And so, um, again, I have to tell you a longer story so that you can get it. About three years ago, as elders here, we begin to talk about um, what does it mean for us to purchase property? Because we were seeing, seeing trends around us and around the country that churches that got to a particular size were getting kicked out of buildings. In New York City, this happened with schools, where, or with churches that were meeting in public schools. They're this close to losing their opportunity to meet inside in schools. And if you've ever been in New York City, you can't buy places in New York City. There's not a lot of places to buy. Fortunately, they were to stay there. And then we looked here in Tempe because our lease was ending in this property, and we were going to say, where should we go? Because we're too big to rent a church that meets in the morning where we can only meet at night because we saw most of our growth, as you guys can experience, here in the morning. And so we begin to look at places that we can lease, but then it was going to cost $500,000 to lease a particular building for us to use. And then four years, we'd be out of there and wasted that $500,000 talking to friends of ours. There's a church here called the Anthem that planted here in Tempe. Uh, Nick Crespo, godly guy. Him and his wife moved here from New Mexico, started a church near campus. Much like our, ours in the beginning, they're meeting at the theater. They were kicked out of the theater, and then no school would let them meet there. And I told them, I get that. Because when we were trying to move from here to lease McCamey Junior High, of which no school meets there, and Myra Elementary, of which no school meets there, the city of Tempe said no. Well, this particular church, the Anthem now, they're meeting in Mesa, um, and there's nothing wrong with Mesa. There's nothing wrong with Scottsdale or Phoenix or any of those cities because a lot of our people come from there. We want you to be a part of this, but we wanted to have a place in Tempe. If we were going to be Redemption Tempe, we couldn't be Redemption Tempe in Gilbert, right? That would just be, that would just be weird. And so we begin to ask the question, okay, we have some money. Let's, let's try to go into buying a property. And so that, that's the only pl- way that we know if we bought a place, no one could kick us out. And even though the community doesn't think that we're here to serve them, we can show them over a 20-year period, we're here for you. We're here to bless you and serve you. So I want to take you on that journey as well, which is quite interesting for me, just needless to say. First, first building we looked at was a pharma building. Downtown Tempe, big warehouse building, uh, really, really nice, right behind Makayos, and um, it was $12 million. And so when they told us $12 million, we said, can't do that, walked away from that, right? No way. And uh, one of the things we were telling you guys is, and we took you guys to a roller coaster, hey, we have a building two weeks later. Actually, we never really came back and said we didn't have it. We didn't do a good job of communicating that. We would just come up and say, we have a building. And that was it, right? So we would look at that, and we, said, we, we did say this. We didn't want to put ourselves in a position where we could not do ministry, um, um, meaning we bought a building, and we had so much money wrapped up in the building that we're, we weren't able to hire people as our church was growing, and we only had three elders at that time to be able to shepherd the flock. And so we, we did, $12 million is far too much. After that, it was the Broadway building, which is a building we liked. Uh, it was on Broadway in between Rule and McClintock. But in order to get that building, you had to buy the building that wasn't big enough to host us, um, to use it for facilities, but then the land next to it that you secure the parking lot and not have to pay the city. But to do that, it was going to be 
$10 million because you'd have to build a brand new building. And so we looked at that and we walked away from there. By this time, we're on our knees crying, trying to figure out what we're going to do. Jason Ray repeated on himself. And so we're just trying to figure out, like, what, what, what are we going to do? And so Jason, after he's done doing what he did, he says, hey, let's, how about we look to buy this property? Because Jason's a very good, pragmatic guy. He's a great guy on the team. And he comes, look at our baby dedications, look at our baptism, look at our numbers, look at our attendance. And we've seen the most growth, and we've done the most ministry outside of ourselves. So just in case you guys don't know, we, we, we commit to ourselves as a church to give 15% of our giving that we bring in for a year outside of ourselves. That has not included the, the twenty dollars to $30,000 that we usually raise at the end of the year for Advent offering that also goes out of ourselves. We wanted to continue to do that. Just like God calls individuals to give toward the local church, as a local church, we believe that we should bless others. And we wanted to continue to do that, and we've been able to do that more in this property. So we went to the bank and said, how much are you guys going to sell this for? And they said, $7 million. Jason peed on himself again. And so we couldn't, we couldn't get that. We had to get him. We had, to, we had to help him out a little bit. We couldn't do that. So then we went to Neil Pitchell. Neil Pitchell is the executive pastor of All Redemption, and he handles the finances. And we said, we really want to buy this property, but $7 million is too much. He says, what is a good number for you guys? And we said, if we can get it down to $5 million, we think with the stretch that we'll be able to do that. Um, Neil Pitchell, his words, not mine, he says, listen, I'm, I'm a Jewish guy who knows money. We'll get it. And I said, <laughs> I said, you said that if I said that, I couldn't say it, but you said it, so do it, right? <laughs> So he comes back, he says, no, they're not budging, but I can give them the budge. They go down to six million, they go down, finally gets on the five million, he goes, I got this guy on the rope. I think we can go lower than that. I'm like, if you can go lower than that, you said you were the Jewish guy. I didn't say that, you said. And then he, he, he came back and with the final number and says, we can close for 3.7 million. And we said, Neil, you're right, <laughs> you could do it. And so that's when we came last year around May, June, and said, okay, we have the building, we put money on it, and we went through kind of a process of doing some testing because uh, there was a gas station here, and we'd come back and say, not yet, not yet, not yet. August came, and we said, we closed in the building. We didn't want to start a capital campaign at that moment um, because we wanted to make sure that we can close at that moment. So that's why we bought it. Now, we did something that was unique. Most churches say, we're not going to buy the building until we raise, raise the money. But given that we were a part of a bigger church and Redemption Church, we had the ability to do some things that most churches couldn't do. We wanted to close at that time for a couple of reasons. One, the interest rates at that time were extremely low. And if we were able to get the advancement on the money, we were able to get into this building. We met with then-mayor uh, of Tempe, Hugh Hallman, who was the headmaster of Tempe Prep, who currently was renting from the bank for the, the gym as well as the football field for practice. And also the guy who leads um, at Options, Jeff, who, who works here and serves here and, and, um, and has a school there for a charter school. And we said, hey, if you, would you guys be willing to go into a five-year lease so that we, we don't want to just have a bunch of property that just sits there because that's what most churches do. We want to be able to use it and also it'd be able to help us. Would you guys want to do it? And they're like, yeah, we don't have anywhere to go. We thought we were going to kick us out. Because if another school, which there were three other schools that wanted to buy this place, they were just going to use it for themselves. So it's a great way for us to go, no, 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 that's not what we're about. And so we were able to secure a long-term lease with them and, and get the building, which made our lease, or excuse me, our mortgage around the same price a little bit cheaper than what we were paying for our lease so that we can continue to do ministry. And so here's how we bought the building. One, $3.7 million. We got a $2 million loan from the bank. Next, it was an investment. We got $1.7 million from Redemption Church Family Reserves. Let me explain this. Many of you have families, many of you have savings, and you have a saving. And oftentimes you go into that saving when there's something very important. Redemption Church, all the congregations put reserves into a saving. 
Um, we went to the leadership team and said, we really, really want to buy this building. And the leadership team in themselves said, we want a church in Tempe, and we want to secure that there will be ministry in Tempe for a long time. And, and, and here's how we got there, guys, honestly. As we looked at churches that got to our size or bigger, we noticed a trend that people moved away, and as they moved away, ministry moved away. In fact, the building that we, 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 prop, we purchased, this property, all of this property, it's about nine acres, used to be owned by Tri-City Baptist Church. And Tri-City Baptist Church moved because their ministry moved to South Chandler. Now, that's nothing against them. In fact, I'm glad they moved. We would have never had a building, right? <laughs> and so that works out for us. But we, we don't ever want to move. We totally want to reach people of Mesa and of Chandler and of Gilbert and of Phoenix and Scottsdale. We want them to be a part of this. I mean, that's part of the location why we, we had it. But we wanted to make sure we had a Tempe address to be in Tempe, to be a light to the people of Tempe and anybody else who wanted to get in. And then the leadership team so graciously said, you will be a part of that. And they said, how about we give you guys a gift of a million dollars? And I said, how about yes? <laughs> yes, we'll take it. And then, and then also we'll give you an advancement of, of 0.7 and for we can secure the building. So that came to 3.7. Now here's our part in this as a church. And here's the part we're asking for us to, to dial in on and to stretch ourselves. Is now that we have the building, we have to go through a campaign. And here's what the campaign's for. First, responsibility and future investment. That's $700,000. That's that 0.7. We were gifted a million. So essentially it's a $2 million project. We're just already halfway there. That 0.7 is responsibility in that this. Though we have family reserves and the savings that they were able to give us, we are no longer children. Part of us growing as a church and as a strong church is for us, particularly Redemption Tempe, to look at the other churches and the leadership team of Redemption and say, we are a self-sustaining congregation. Um, if you think, use the family language. You have people that grow up in a family, that get help from a family, and they move out, and oftentimes they are blessed in significant ways that they now are putting back and helping the family. We believe we're in that position. We have the second largest, largest congregation and the fastest growing congregation within Redemption, that God is bringing people left and right. So therefore, we want to be able to have the responsibility to say our mortgage here that we're going to pay off uh, for the next 20 years, which we think we'll do in 10 years. Um, our responsibilities of renovations here, we want them to be ours in Redemption 10B. Therefore, there's a responsibility. The future investment that we have is to say we want to see this ministry go forward. Like we want to see more gospel ministry. We want to see other places, uh, other churches that are in hard places be able to secure an opportunity to spread the gospel. Places like Flagstaff, in which we sent Vince Garvey. Places like San Francisco, in which we sent Justin Anderson. That we want to be able to have reserves there, that they're able to draw upon that in the future, that we can see the gospel go forth, because we do believe that's what God has called us to be a part of. And then, so that's $700,000, and the other $300,000 is for renovations and improvements. Majority of those renovations will go in the children's ministry building. Um, it would be a lot of things that will be going towards um, making that place better, we, we believe that not only are we sharing the gospel there in words, um, but we believe that the aesthetic should be up to, up to par, that there's code violations there that we need to get up to par. Now, let me ensure you, your kids are safe. But if you don't give, they're going to die. Um, so we have to give. 
Um, we got to get ramps there. We got to get exit signs. We got to get new carpet. We have to get new paint. We got to get new lighting. We got to get new cabinets. There's a lot of things that we need to do in there. And so all of that will be done through, for professionals. And many of us will be doing a lot of handiwork there, which I know a lot of you guys are going to be excited about. And so majority of the 300,000 is going to go there. And the rest are going to go to repaving the parking lot and repainting some things and painting our buildings so that we can have redemption colors and getting things like wood in the lobby so they continue that our, our kind of art lobby that we have there. And, and you know, as a million dollars enough to do everything? Absolutely not. So if we blow this out, of, I, 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 I know we can do a million dollars. I know we can because we have the money. You guys have it. I have it. All of us together have it. We just have to sacrifice it. But I think we can blow a million dollars out and continue to, to, to renovate this place so that other people can use it. And so before I close with this, I know that oftentimes when churches buy property, it becomes the main thing. And the church begins to turn on itself. If there's anything that's indicative of our past that I think will give us hope for the future is we've never been that church. We will never be that church. That we are not saying we have a whole property so that we can just do a bunch of stuff here. What we're saying we have a property so schools like Ed Options can meet and have an alternative school for people, many of them, that couldn't go to public schools anymore. That schools like Tempe Prep, who have no space to build a gym, can say, you can lease the gym. None of us know how to play basketball anyway. And, 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 and AZ Assist that, that helps with Autism Foundation, where you can just use it, that Young Life can have offices to reach ASU in the East Valley, that a piano place that's looking for a place to work on piano. This is probably the best story in all of this, is that in us purchasing this property, we gave West Mesa a property, an opportunity to have a property. So here's how this worked. There was a guy who was sitting in Gilbert who was hearing about Tempe, hearing about West Mesa, and says, hey, I own this huge piano shop. I don't even need that space. It's right in the heart of West Mesa, Right by a bus stop, which Chris Amaro, who's the lead pastor, was saying, we need a bus stop near our location so people can get here. Well, this guy says, if I have a place to store these pianos so that I can work on them, I would give you this building. And then we said, we have a lot of space that you can store your pianos and work on them. He goes, perfect. So he moved his pianos over here. So now West Mesa, who's a small congregation of 80 people, working poor, bilingual congregation, has a place. And they've been able to see more people minister to because of a bus stop. Because many of those people are not riding bikes or many of those people are not driving cars. And that happens because we have a property. And so here, it is not all about redemption Tempe. It's about what God is doing, using this property as a tool to be able to bless the city around us. Like that, that, is, our, that is our vision and that is our passion. So I want to do something a little unique here. If you guys go ahead and start handing out those brochures, there's going to be some guys running around. They're not going to be running around. But they're going to hand out some brochures here. Everything that I just said is in those brochures. Please take those things home. Um, as, you, as, you, as you take those, I want you to turn to the last page when you get them. Just turn to the very last page, and we'll end on this, and it says your role. It says your role. We started off with talking about service for this reason. If we start to look inward, we will never be the people of God. Like Jesus said, we should be salt that is no, of no use, and we should just be thrown out. If I, as, as a pastor, begin to lead us to only care about ourselves. Now, there will be seasons where we do need to take care of one another. But if that's all we do, and we never care for the poor in our city, that we never care for the orphan in our city, that we never care for those who don't know God in our city, and that we are not being people who are equipped to be God's people in the city, then shut the doors. Shut the doors. And that is before you all, that is before God. He has called us to be people who serve because we believe that rooted in the nature of God is someone who serves. And so as you take these brochures and you think about what does this mean for you to get skin in the game, 
right? We're asking that we give. Um, on March 3rd, we're going to have a one-time giving. It's going to be of $100,000. And then the next three years, we're going to have pledges for the rest of the $900,000. Again, March 3rd, it's the last week of this Commission Sunday. We're going to take an offering, a cash offering, above and beyond our normal giving for $100,000. That means we're going to stretch. We're probably going to have to dig into our own personal savings to put that in there. And then we're going to give above and beyond that for the next three years, above and beyond our, our normal giving here for the next three years, pledges that we will be able to pay off this million dollars. I think we'll blow it out of the water. Now, if you're anything like I was in my first building campaign eight years ago, when the pastor said we're going to give above and beyond our normal giving, I went after him and said, what's, and beyond, what's above and beyond your normal giving? He goes, the giving you give here. I said, I've never given a dime here. And he looked at me and he says, take a class. And we took a class on stewardship, and it blew my mind. It was a class that I took that made me want to go into ministry because it, was, it told me the value of the local church and what the local church was able to do when the people of God give and the obedience of giving. So some of you said, I've never financially participated in this. Take a class. We're going to have stewardship classes offered in that, that, that not just how to give to your church, but how to view money. And so we would say, wherever you are, above and beyond your giving, we are going to, we are going to sacrifice. We're not talking about equal gifts. Everyone's not going to be able to give the same. But we are talking about equal sacrifice. So again, $100,000, one-time cash giving to get us started March 3rd. We're going to have to stretch. That's three times more than we've ever raised in a one-time giving, but we can do it. Um, and then also three-year pledges. And so when it says your role here, pray. Ask God to reveal how he wants you to give to Redemption Tempe for the city of Tempe. Just, like genuinely pray. If you're in a family, pray. Make it a part of your meals. If you're, if you're just a single person or a single gal, get with one another and pray. Just pray. Engage. Ask God how you can be a part of the mission of Redemption Tempe, the blessing serve the city. Get involved in the people's lives. Lastly, give. Ask God to provide the means and the resources for you to live wisely, intentionally for the sake of the gospel, including giving to the vision campaign. It will mean a sacrifice. You are going to go without somewhere in order to give towards this that we will be a church in this city for the next 20 years and that the people in our community would, would be able to say, we may, not, we may not believe what they believe, but man, we're sure glad they're here. Amen? I'll make you feel uncomfortable right now, so why don't you go ahead and put those on your seat, stand up, and uh, let's hold hands and pray. Can't get out of it. Only I can. <laughs> I would, but uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are one with you because of the work of your son, Jesus. We look to Jesus as our righteous savior and as our holy savior, who he himself is a perfect example of what it means to be a giver. So as we set out the vision of this church, God, we want to serve more than we've ever served. We want to serve the people around us emotionally, socially, through relationships. We want to serve them psychologically, Lord. We want to serve them spiritually and introduce them to your son, Jesus, and his life, his death, and his resurrection. That those of us in this room who have come to grips with the gospel, Lord, we know that you have indeed paid it all. Even as we sing that song today, Jesus paid it all, Father, we can think about how you gave yourself on the cross and how you gave us your son and how Jesus poured out his life for us and he poured out his life in us by the Spirit. That we may now be an extension of the mission of Christ, Lord, particularly to the city of Tempe, to Scottsdale, to Phoenix, to Chandler, to Mesa, to Gilbert to the many men and women who come here from those places, Lord, who gather together. And as we go out Monday through Saturday, Lord, embodying the good news of Jesus, Father, that we would be ministers, Lord, to our workplaces and to our neighborhoods and to our living rooms and to our classrooms. The people around us would know 
that because we love you, not in spite of you, Lord, but because of the love that we have in Christ, that we also love them. God, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.